God's Word to Ephesians chapter 6 and we're going to be reading more about the armour of God. We're going to take it in one go tonight so I hope this is helpful for you as we rapidly make our way through the armour of God as Paul describes it in Ephesians chapter 6 and we'll read together from verse 13. Therefore put on the full armour of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled round your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Amen. The plan this evening is very straightforward. We're going to consider these words of Paul together. Then we're going to pause at the end of the talk of the sermon. And I'm going to leave you to consider some questions that may be maybe work through within your family, with friends, with someone maybe you've gathered with to watch this tonight, to talk it over and to reflect upon. Let me pray for us as we consider these verses together this evening. Let's pray. Father, you're the God who has given us your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're the one who has provided us with the salvation that we need, the covering that we need. And Father, we thank you that it's only in you that we can take our stand against the devil's schemes. And tonight we pray that as we consider the armour of God, the gifts that you've given us in order to defeat the evil one in our lives, to withstand temptation as it comes to us. We pray, O oh God, that you would speak to us, encourage us, strengthen us. And we pray, O oh God, that we would be better equipped, more ready to face all that will be thrown at us, even in this incoming week. So cover us, clothe us, equip us and protect us, we pray, even in these moments together tonight, as we consider your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Clothing really matters, doesn't it? Whether it's dressy or smart casual. I mean, I know we sometimes give the ladies a bit of a hard time over maybe their obsession or the amount of clothes that they have. But a brochure came across my desk this week that I hadn't ordered, but it boasted on the front that there were 120 different types of styles of trouser that I might want to consider depending on what I was doing or how I was feeling. And that's before any of us consider the work that we do, whether it's around a farm or up a ladder in an office, on the road, nearly all of us have some kind of go-to clothes to fit the task that is ahead of us in any day, a, a uniform of sorts. And if we were to drop the average office worker on the building site, or a nurse into a farmyard, or a bank clerk behind one of those road service lorries, we'd immediately see that something or someone is out of place. And when it comes to the army, a soldier as he enters the battle, the uniform and the military equipment provided can make all the difference. Back on the 6th of July 2016, the long-awaited Chilcot report 
following an inquiry into the Allied invasion of Iraq was released. And it was a damning indictment of the Ministry of Defence. The newspapers reported on that day, once British soldiers were in Iraq, it quickly became clear the army didn't have enough helicopters, armoured vehicles or equipment for surveillance and the intelligence collection. Yet the Ministry of Defence was slow to react to the threats posed by insurgents using roadside bombs that could easily pierce the armour of the army's snatch Land Rovers. That's just one snippet of the whole report, which basically in summary could be said to be saying that the army just wasn't equipped as it should have been. As we're all painfully aware, these po years post-Saddam have resulted in countless deaths to army and civilians alike in Iraq and Afghanistan, all down to the underestimation of the firepower of the enemy and entering into the battle ill-prepared and with inadequate equipment. Paul is determined that his Christian friends in Ephesus don't fall into the same trap in a spiritual sense. And David outlined for us last Sunday evening the very real threat of our enemy, the devil who uses deadly traps to draw us in. And we were reminded that Satan is the deceiver, the liar. And the church faces a very clear and a very present danger. But we are to respond from a place of victory. Our Lord Jesus Christ has dealt with the two greatest threats to our souls, the power of death and the punishment for our sin that we deserved. He died that we might be forgiven. He rose again that we might be justified. Jesus is a victorious Lord and he makes sure that we are equipped for the skirmishes that follow. For the unexpected temptations that come flying at us as if from nowhere and the daily battles that we know that we shall all face. So tonight let's assess the equipment that's being handed to us from the Lord's armoury as he urges us, first of all, verse 13, to put on the full armour of God so that when the day of evil comes, we might be able to stand our ground and after we've done everything, still to stand. So if you want to be able to withstand Satan's schemes, we've got to put these items on. Verse 14, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. The first item we're to reach for is a belt. Something that buckles up tight and holds the rest of the uniform together. Like the weightlifter's leather belt fastened tightly to the highest notches. Older versions use the phrase girding up the loins. Tying pieces of material so tightly that they become immovable. Girding is the ancient word from which we get the word girders today. Those strong metal bars that hold buildings as a framework together. And as soon as I mention the word girders, if any of you have any affinity with Scotland, you'll know the advert for Iron Brew, that Scottish soda, that fizzy drink. Made in Scotland from girders. Strong stuff, supposedly for the strongest of people. And in Roman times, whilst this girding was not metalwork around the waist, the leather was vital for a workman, never mind a soldier. Because the standard attire for a man who went about his work was a flowing robe and to be sure that his robe caused no hindrance as he went about his work when running or hammering or sawing or in battle, it needed well tucked in, gathered up, fastened in way close to deter progress would be to let the belt slip, to let the robe flow. Men didn't wear belts around the house 
when they were, they were relaxed or with their family or casual, but they did wear belts when they went to war. This belt was an essential piece of kit. Without it, even with a sword in hand or shield to defend, the flouncy material would have gotten away and been a huge hindrance. The belt ensured that the soldier was braced and ready for battle. And hence the term, belt of truth. And for those in the Christian church as believers in the Lord's army, truth is absolutely central to our faith. For we live in a world that offers multiple truths and yet at the same time denounces Christians for holding to one truth. So the world basically says to us today, you're welcome to believe anything you want. That's entirely up to you, but don't push your truth upon mine. You know, people are quite happy for you to have your truth and for me to have mine, so long as you don't make me believe in yours. And because our society is so accepting of everyone and tolerance is preached and no one can be accused of being wrong or misled, it all becomes attack against someone's feelings, my rights. Then we can only be dissuaded that there is only one way to God. You know, that, that being good, that's enough. Or... A devout Muslim or Sikh is just as acceptable to God as the kindly atheist. But Paul expressed the centrality of truth as the belt that holds our faith together and that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, the only way to eternal life. That Jesus Christ alone is saviour and we need forgiveness from our sin. The essential, binded all together part of our faith is that there is one true truth. And that will help us stand because over time we will be tempted to think as we watch the news or hear others say of a man or a lady who pretty much lived a pretty sinful life and unrepentant kind of life. But he or she'll be up there now smiling down upon us all and she'll be a little angel in heaven or another little star in the sky. Or people will push us and question us and say, you Christians are so narrow minded, so backward, so dated. And people will say, well, how can you be sure you're right? How can you be sure your truth is true? But this truth, this Christian truth, holds our faith together. It's the belt that buckles us up for the fight and attacks upon Christians that lie ahead. And it's the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord. For our truth does not rest on a theory. Our truth doesn't rest on how we're feeling on any given day. Our truth doesn't rest in something that was dreamt up 50 years ago that everyone thinks, oh, that sounds good. Our truth is in a person, a real person. Indeed, in a real God who revealed himself to us in a real man, in real time, in real history, who lived a real life, who used real words to express who he was and what he was to do. And we need to gather the robes of all the stuff we hear each day and the social media that we read and that draws us in and tuck it all up and see how it fits into the belt of truth around us. The truth of a God who moved among us and lived perfectly for us and died in agony on our cross, taking punishment instead of us and rose again and offers new life to us and now sits on his throne ruling above us and promises one day to come back for us. The first item off the equipment rack each morning is to be that we're buckled up with the knowledge that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is true. 
Jesus is the saviour. He is our barometer of everything that's true. We hold up everything against news of Jesus as saviour, as crucified, as risen, as Lord. We are to measure everything we are against this Lord and the word that he gives us. Why? Well, for one very simple but profound reason. The grave is empty. Christ is risen. Here is a man who didn't just lead a lovely life and expects everyone to follow him, but rather, here's a man who defeated death and rose again. And because of this, he's got to be believed. He must be listened to. He's the only one who can give us hope in this life and the life that's to come. We need to tie everything else up and tuck it into this glorious truth that Jesus is truth. Why? Because he rose again. Then we reach for the breastplate of righteousness. Verse 14. That great piece of armour that covers the vital organs of the Roman soldier, his heart and his lungs. You know, protecting those vital organs from puncture wounds of the sword or the javelin. And how we need this armour protecting our hearts each day, like the, like the flak jacket we used to see the, the soldiers or the policemen wear around Northern Ireland during the Troubles. Because whilst part of the Lord's army, we are sinners, yes, but at the same time, those who are now covered in Christ's righteousness. That covers our hearts, our guilty, sinful hearts. And that's the great exchange that took place at the cross, isn't it? This is the gospel in a nutshell. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. Paul explains it this way. God made him who had no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us, he did it at the cross, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Satan loves to remind us of our sin. Satan loves to drag up the past and make us wallow in our despair. But our Saviour wants us to wear his righteousness. He says, hey, take this, wear my righteousness. Now you believed in me. Now you are covered in my perfection. That's part of the wonderful deal. Ephesians 1 verse 4 explains it. Let these truths and his righteousness cover our hearts and give us air in our spiritual lungs. As Paul writes, hear this and go into a brave new day covered and ready for battle. Even before he made this world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do. We didn't conjure it up. We didn't dream it up. God decided on this. And we read in Ephesians 1 verse, it gave him pleasure to do it. And so we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son. He forgives our sins. You see, the moment we forget that we're covered by Christ's righteousness, we will become vulnerable to the evil one. He will make us think we haven't done enough to earn it or we have sinned too often to keep it. He will do all he can to expose our hearts and pierce us deeply. And that's why we need to keep confessing our sin, admitting our guilt before God, and coming to Christ, but delighting in the fact he's given us his righteousness 
in exchange for our sin. Doing what Ephesians 4.24 has already told us to do. Put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. We put on the Lord's armour. He gives us his equipment. Yes, Christian friend, watching tonight, we wear Christ and we wear his righteousness. He took our torn, filthy rags of sin and we wear his armour of glittering golden righteousness. For in heavenly legal terms, our God sees us now in Christ. We are as pure and spotless and holy as his son Jesus. We wear his righteousness and what a protection that gives us when the devil comes and has a go at us. Get it on. Pull it over that flak jacket, that breastplate of righteousness. Let it cover your heart and it will keep you standing firm. And as we dress, then let's not forget our feet. Soldiers need appropriate shoes and as we well know there are any types, any number of types of shoes on display. I wondered the rows of shoes in the decathlon sports shop on the edge of Belfast a few weeks ago and I noticed there there are walking shoes, running shoes, boat shoes, camping shoes, football boots for grass, for indoor, for synthetic pitches, rugby boots, hockey trainers, skateboarding shoes, basketball shoes, pumps, equestrian boots, flippers, wetsuit shoes, I can hardly say that, casual shoes, camping shoes, slippers, crocs and sliders, cycling shoes, and that was just in the first four aisles. If you were to wear the cycling shoes in a 15 mile trek, and your feet will be blistered and the walking will be wretched. Slip on the sliders with your white socks for a rugby match and you will be battered. Have the flippers on the basketball court and you are beat. I know the Romans knew the importance of shoes. In fact, the Jewish historian Josephus once attributed the success of the Roman army to the attention it was given to the shoes. These great leather straps attached these wooden and cork blocks that were nailed together tightly. They were sturdy and strong, individually tailored for each foot soldier, enabling an army to move swiftly from one place to the other rapidly, covering different terrain without stopping for fear of need of repairs. Today, war has become mechanised and computerised, hasn't it? But in the ancient time, wars were won or lost, all according to the march. The famous Stonewall Jackson in the American Civil War was renowned in his expert in the timing and motivating his troops for the march. And that is what made him so successful. Motivating, leading his men and knowing the timings, but all to do with the footwear. The foot soldiers, mobilised, motivated, inevitably winning the battle. Here we read in verse 15, that our feet are to be fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Paul has already described the gospel beautifully in this way before now. Back in Ephesians 2 verses 13 and 14 he's written, Now in Christ Jesus you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. It reminds us that once we were God's enemies, but in Christ through Jesus' shed blood, we are now at peace with God. The sacrifice of Jesus is acceptable before our Father in heaven. And we're now not just friends of God. It's not just we've set aside hostility and things are okay between us. It's patched up. But no, he brings us into his family. There is nothing between him and us anymore. We are one with him. All because of Christ. We are at peace. 
And this is wonderful news. The kind of news of joy and success and end of hostilities that peace has broken out. On my visits uh, last week, I was with one of our church family members who could remember quite vividly and she was recounting to me how the last year of her primary school here in Macrofelt, coming out of school late one afternoon to be greeted by lots of mothers who were weeping and yet excited and cheering. They were telling their children as they emerged from school that the war was over. The Second World War was over. Peace had been declared. The hostilities were over. Germany had surrendered. They were defeated. And these children went running back into the school playground to tell their teachers and there were hugs and there were tears and there was joy and there was excitement. Rejoicing broke out. Having never been through that, I can't fully appreciate how that must have felt to know that the tyranny and the, the dark shadow of Nazism was, was defeated. But how often we forget that our greatest enemy has been defeated. Sin Satan has been crushed. The gospel of peace has been poured out from the lips of Paul because that peace has been accomplished as it poured out from the blood of our Lord Jesus at the cross. We have good news to share. The gospel should make us ready to, to run and, and hug and tell, to rejoice at the wonder of his love, to be prepared to declare that peace with everyone we meet each day. You know... To say to friends, does death worry you? Does your sin bother you? Are you worried about the future? <laughs> well, let me tell you about a saviour who's dealt with it all in his love. We used to have a bit of a saying in the street where I grew up. If you wanted to share some news with the folks around the neighbourhood, well, there was telephone, telegram, teletext, and then there was tell Mrs. Watson. Yeah, she had the gift of the gab. Once she heard, she told everyone. She wasn't so good at keeping secrets. And in ancient times, messages were carried person to person, not by telegram or telephone, but you told a messenger who ran back to the city from which he was from to share the good or the bad news. And a lookout in a watchtower could inevitably tell if the messenger who was running towards them, spotted on the horizon, was carrying and returning with good or bad news. If it was bad news, the runner would appear bedraggled and slow and downbeat and dead on his feet. His body language suggested that there was defeat, things were done, the army was defeated. But if it was good news, the poor runner was sprinting, exhausted, but lungs bursting, dying to share, having run miles and miles, but with gladness in his heart and joy in his message. He came with a message of victory. And in those days... That was celebrated. <coughs> but for us in the Lord's army, as we prepare each day, are we fitted and ready to go with the gospel of peace, with joy in our hearts and peace in our lips? You know, by looking at us and hearing us talk, does it look as if we're carrying good news or are we looking bedraggled and dead on our feet and so unexcited by the gospel? that our lives barely match the marvellous message that we have in Christ. I think in our province we have spent so long beating up everyone else with the gospel, we've almost lost the delight in the good news. Good news. The gospel's good news. It's peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
It is news that peace is broken out between God and man and the gift of Christ Jesus our Saviour. Are we fitted? Are we ready? Are we bringing peace or are we bringing war? Is it the good news we bring or is it bad news? As Isaiah 52 verse 7 reminds how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those, the runners who bring good news, proclaiming peace, bringing good tidings, proclaiming salvation. Let's get marching and running and sharing with this good news of a saving God. And then we need to be armed with the shield of faith, verse 16. Literally, in the Greek it reads, a door of faith. There were two types of shield that the soldier carried. There was either the small dinner plate, circular, frisbee type one, or else there was the large six to eight foot door, oblong shaped. Basically two huge pieces of wood glued together with nails coated in tar and pitch, wrapped with leather and heavy metal. This door of a shield was best used as the army formed what's called a phalanx, joining these shields together as they marched towards the enemy, covering their front, their sides and their backs. As the enemy rained down these fiery darts, these fiery arrows that had been dipped in tar, satellite aimed to cause maximum damage. And the shield we read as we march together as God's army is one of faith. Faith that is best kept and protected when we are accompanied by others. That door by itself is no good alone. Someone could get us from behind and that's why we need someone at the front, others to our sides, others behind us. Faith buckles when we try and go it alone. But the fellowship and companionship and connectedness of our march of faith is strengthened when we march on with others. Friends, there are too many lone rangers out there in the Comfort and Union Road who think they just can do it alone. But we need that companionship and fellowship tightly bound together, covering each other's backs. And as Paul backs up all he has said earlier in his letter to the gathering of God's people in Ephesus, that they would be strengthened, they would depart together with all God's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep was the love of Christ. They need it and they need it together. We need it and we need to learn of it together. You see, as the enemy showers his fiery arrows upon us, he aims to wound us deeply, to scar us and to sear us. And the only way to know protection is by raising up the shield of faith. Friends, I don't know what's going on with you at this time. Maybe it's worry about work. Maybe it's uncertainty about the virus that's out there. Maybe fear of any kind of return to normality. Or for others, the frustration that we're far from normality still. Some have been seared by fellow Christians. Others scarred by sins from the past. But whatever we're feeling or thinking at this time, whatever seems to be coming in and down and the evil one firing in around us, what protects us from our enemy is trust in the living God. R.C. Sproul, one writer, puts it like this. One of the formidable weapons of Satan is the weapon of accusation. Satan accuses believers of their unworthiness to belong to the kingdom of God. And he does this not to lead to repentance, but to lead us to despair so that they will be paralysed and not able to function effectively as Christians. The only answer we have to these attacks of Satan against our integrity is that we're justified by faith. Our saving faith in Christ is the shield that protects us from the accusations of the enemy. Christian friend, when we wake up each day and we seek to walk closely with Christ and his people, we will find ourselves safe in the times of temptation, doubt and despair, covered by his love and surrounded by those who walk with us. For he surrounds us and he shields us 
We're in his bubble and he protects us. Verse 17 tells us, take the helmet of salvation. I think this is one of the most vivid pictures and the easiest to get. We need the daily reminder that we are saved. As Christians, we are eternally secure. Jesus has accomplished all we need for our salvation. And with that, has strapped to our minds, covering our thoughts as we walk into another day, that we have a settled assurance up here, up here, in here. When Jesus cried, it is finished from the cross, it was. The price was paid. The debt was covered. Our guilt was erased. Our sin was atoned for. We're saved, wonderfully, gloriously saved. And the moment we step out forgetting that and leave our heads unprotected and our minds uncovered, Satan will begin to mess with us, muddling us up, confusing us, tormenting us, always asking us, are you sure you're saved? Can you be certain you're one of his? And so we're back full circle, aren't we? We need Ephesians chapters 1 to 3 in order that we might live out Ephesians chapters 4 to 6. We need this constant reassurance in our lives. We need the heights of Christ's redemptive purposes that are etched out in our minds in order that we might live out our calling here on earth. We need to know before we can be who we're meant to be. We need to share in that salvation so that we can live as those who are saved. We need Ephesians chapter 2 verses 4 to 8. But because of his great love for us, God who's rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. Let's keep filling our heads with the good things of the gospel. Knowing that the salvation we have in Christ is not only sufficient for past sins, but more than adequate for our present sins. As Satan cannot snatch our souls anymore, he wants to mess with our minds. And the only way we can stay strong is by strapping on the helmet of faith. And whilst finishing out with the only offensive weapon in his armoury, verse 17 tells us we're to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, reminding us all that this book, this book, the Bible, is to be held and taken up and used. And accompanied by God's Holy Spirit, it is powerful, this Word, this word accompanied by the Spirit can create and destroy and heal and judge and forgive and restore and save. This book can make us or break us. This book is powerful because it is of and from God. It is the complete weapon. It can wound and heal. It can save and destroy. And how significant is that when Jesus himself was tempted and the devil fired continuous darts in his mind and his heart, questioning Jesus' life and identity and integrity out there in the wilderness. Jesus repeatedly replied, It is written, it is written, this book saves, this book offers hope. These words are powerful. Jesus used the Bible to disarm Satan, who could not stand against the force of Scripture. So when we teach memory verses, it is not just for the boys and girls. It is there to be in our mind and in our armour that we're to draw out every day so that we can face and fight the fierce enemy that is the devil. To come back to those words, all oh, the height, length, breadth and depth of the love of God and Jesus Christ for us. Saints of God can only stand when we stand in his word and we wield it as our weapon, 
feeble Christians, weak saints, struggling believers, doubting brothers and sisters, we can almost always put it down to the fact we have not reached for God's word. We have not got that weapon to hand. And so, how do we respond in this, the fight of our lives? Well, we take up the armour of God. We put it on. And when we do that, we will find with the belt of truth buckled tightly, with the breastplate of righteousness securing our hearts, with our feet fitted with the news of peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Can you believe it? Do we lift our shields together and fight fiery darts with a reminder of our faith? Whilst wearing that helmet that covers our minds that speaks to us that we are saved. And as that power flashes in our hands, as we lift our Bibles and God's Holy Spirit uses that book to protect us and empower us. Friends, there are many things we can wear each day. Certain clothes that identify us and even the jobs that we are about to do. The uniforms that we wear or the style that we hope to carry off denotes where we work or who we work for. But before putting any of that on, let's put these items on so we can stand.